This is TechSnap, episode 373. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This episode is brought to you by our three great sponsors, IX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and it's just me for now. However... I'm about to be joined by one Mr. Alan Jude. Of course, Wes is there, Jed, and straight out of California, aspiring sysadmin himself, Jeff, will sit down. Now, Wes comes in a little bit later in the conversation because the guys sat down at a table, we had the mics on, and they just started chatting, as good friends often do, especially when we all share a trade. And that's managing these crazy systems and constantly watching the news. So the guys kicked off a great conversation. And now, thanks to Wes's traveling, he's somewhere beautiful in the world right now. And the fact that I'm getting on a plane here in a few hours to go back to Texas, well, it opened up an opportunity to share this conversation with you. Welcome to this special live segment of uh, TechSnap, I almost said BSD now, uh, here live from Linux Fest Northwest, and I'm joined by my temporary co-host here, Jed. Uh, welcome, Jed. Greetings. Hi. Yes. And we have our, our also special guest, Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, so the, the top story that stuck out for me this week, uh, as I was uh, in Chris's RV driving up here, uh, I got the alert on my phone that the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Montreal Stock Exchange were shut down early. And all trading was halted, uh, and there was wild speculation about what might be going on. I was like, oh, God. It's like, I was thinking a couple of minutes ago, oh, I got nothing to do, I should check on my stocks. I'm like, nope. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't even want to know. Yeah. It's like, you know, things were going up, and then the stock exchange shut down. It's like, uh, and there's like, well, was it a flash crash? And it's like, no, it doesn't seem like that. <laughs> uh, and so we got more updates here from last night saying that it was a technical issue, and it wasn't caused by cybersecurity attacks. Uh, you know, they like to say that. Uh, and the, <laughs> the operators of the exchange said it's actually hardware failure. It's like, isn't this shit supposed to be redundant? <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you had one job. <laughs> uh, well, because on Friday, they were like, we hope to resume trading on Monday. It's like, that doesn't sound like the level of confidence I'm hoping for. Uh, that's amateur. Yeah. yeah. So the operators of the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Montreal Stock Exchange says trading will resume normally uh, Monday after the hardware failure forced markets to close early on Friday. Uh, well, everyone wants a three-day weekend. So. Yeah. Well, and they close at like 2 o'clock or one thirty or something like that. It's a little weird. but anyway. So the TMX Group, which is the company that runs the stock exchanges, uh, said in a statement uh, late Saturday evening that the hardware failure occurred in their central storage appliance for the trading system. So I'd love to know more about that. I'm guessing a NetApp or an EMC, some kind of SAM. And just one of them, probably, which, yeah. which well, is always a mistake. Well, it, maybe it's a cluster, but, you know, but those you, never work as good as you hope. Yeah, like you have to do a pull-the-plug test on, on your stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what's really funny is uh, the original news article for it had related stories at the bottom. And it's like, new CEO of TS, uh, TMX, uh, talks about how laying off half their employees will make them much more agile. It's like, hmm, 
I wonder if these two things are related. Oh, God, I can't help but laugh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Let's get rid of most of the sysadmins. We don't need them. All this stuff is computerized. And then, oh, look, our central storage server has just fallen over. <laughs> Any idea on the file system they were using? Uh, no idea what the file system they were using. Uh, yeah, if they're using something like an EMC or, you know, a real big storage appliance. That, it's all custom. Yeah. So, like, uh, NetApp is... OneFS? No, that's Isilon. Oh, gosh. What's the NetApp file system called? I don't remember. It's not uh, worth knowing. It's a modified version of FreeBSD's UFS that supports up to 256 snapshots. So it actually has like a bitmap array. So there's a limit on how many snapshots you can have. Wow, that sounds so, like LVM. Yeah, so in each inode, there's a 256-bit bitmap that uh -huh. indicates which, if this block, which snapshots this block is in. Oh. And only when it's all zero can they free the block. Uh, oh, yeah. And that's how they do snapshots on, on the NetApp file system, uh, which I can't for the life of me remember what the name of it is off the top of my head. I don't know much about the EMC, but the NetApp is, is based on FreeBSD. And then, uh, so maybe if, if, if they had a central SAN like that, what they should look at maybe is the Isilon uh, from Dell. Well, Dell acquired the company recently, which is a, a clustered thing that maybe would be more resilient to failure <laughs> than whatever they had here. Yeah, seriously. But every it, de it definitely seems like, you know, ZFS was the answer here, as, as it is for everything, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, and more than one. Yes. yes. Well, exactly. You need something like the iX Systems M50, where you have multiple heads and they fail over, but you're using... Uh, SCSI reservations to make sure that d both nodes don't try to write to the disk at once and corrupt things. Yeah. Right. Although, for the TSX, you might need something even more complicated than that, where maybe ZFS isn't the right answer, but whatever they had definitely didn't work in this case. <laughs> True. I, it's possible that they had two, two uh, storage appliances and an active-passive thing, and the passive one couldn't power up. Yep, uh, or, you know, the passive one was out of sync or it got into a split-brain condition, and it's like, I don't know what is safe. I don't know that I don't have old copies of blocks that it wasn't syncing or something, uh, and they just didn't go forward. Or, you know, maybe they're both too close together and were affected by a, a common failure oh, yeah. of some kind. Maybe there was a power search and it took them both yeah, out. Yeah, you know, uh, batteries. People mm. really forget the amount of maintenance it takes for a giant UPS bank. Yeah. Uh, those had to be tested and the batteries replaced all the time. You know, like on really good ones, they have a separate sensor on like every battery uh, and they have to monitor those. So, Jeff, tell us a bit about batteries. You yeah. know about batteries? Yeah, I do. I mean, it really depends on what they're using, but I mean, a big part is you got to have everything balanced too. So, even if a cell goes out of balance, then they're, 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 they're screwed. I mean, you got you to gotta get that thing replaced and doing that while not taking out your power is a huge thing because a lot of these batteries uh, have pass through. So, if you're going to disconnect it, you're going to disconnect power to the server anyways, right? So maybe it was that free and open uh, battery storage thing that they got going on. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, maybe that maybe that'll have a better play into something in the future where we have a standard on these UPS backups that would probably help out a lot more. Um, but for now, I'm guessing most of these things are probably just using standard lead-acid batteries. And uh, yeah, I mean, those don't last forever. They definitely don't last forever. They can't cycle that many times. And they definitely need a lot of maintenance, so that can definitely fail. Yeah, like when I worked at the power plant and I looked in there, they had a kind of, not custom, but a little bit different UPS than you'd normally see in like a data center. And it literally just looked like an oversized refrigerator just full of car batteries all strung together. Yeah. Uh, it had a giant switch on the side that went clunk when it switched over. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Wow. Yeah, but like I've also heard stories of at data centers, you know, 
when they have enough text in the data center, uh, unlike maybe TMX has now, um, they walk around with a, an infrared scanner and actually check the temperature and look for the batteries that are too hot because they know those ones are the ones that are going to give out on them when, when shit hits the fan. Oh, because, yeah. because your resistance inside your battery changes as it starts to crystallize. Yeah, yeah. not only that. I mean, you got temperature, you got connection, uh, connection strength. Everything's got to be torqued properly. And if you're relying on, say, a bunch of server admins to take care of something electrical, uh, do they have you know electrician on staff? That's kind of something, or even a, a good service tech on staff for that kind of thing because... Um, nobody really wants to mess with that. I mean, that's a lot of power. Even though it's probably 12 volt being inverted, that's still a lot of power. It could be that's, very dangerous. Yeah, a lot of amps. Yeah, outside of the, the expertise of your regular, you know, rack monkey. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, you, you drop a screwdriver on those things, it's it's a big boom. Yeah, especially something that big. Yeah, you know, people kill themselves with just you know 110 in their house. Yep. So. Yeah, it's good to be cautious around that stuff, and you yep. don't want to lay those people off. Yeah, no. and you know, uh, I had similar experience at uh, the very first data center scale engine used, and it was actually the day we were moving out, and so we were scheduled to go there at two o'clock and start moving half of our equipment to the new data center, and then uh, a week later we were going to move the other half. Um, or no, maybe it was when we were moving the second half actually. Um, so all the machines were configured on their next boot to switch to the configuration for the new data center. Uh, but there was a big power outage in the, in the city uh, at like 10 o'clock that morning. Um, and it turns out when uh, the company that, so when, when we moved into the data center, it was a local cable company, but a big national one came and bought it and laid off most of the people and so on. And didn't have an on-staff electrician at the site anymore because they were planning to not have it as a data center but just use it for their own internal stuff. And because of lack of maintenance and testing, the, uh, the transfer cable or whatever between the generator and the ATS uh, had corroded. And so uh, when, when the power failed, the, everything went to batteries and it was fine. And as the batteries ran down, uh, the generator started up and was providing power and the power didn't make it into the building. Uh, and then the batteries ran out and everybody's stuff went off. And uh, eventually the power company restored power and all my machines powered up thinking they were in a different city with a different uh, oh. network configuration. Uh, and back then we were using uh, the NIS, so kind of like LDAP, so mm -hmm. the, the half of the password file and everything came from a directory services thing, yeah, uh, which it couldn't reach anymore. Uh, and so, like, any command you try to do at the console waited two minutes for that to time out before, like, so you start top, and it spent two minutes trying to turn the user IDs into usernames, failed, and then finally started. So trying to, and, and the room is full, like, every sysadmin in the area is in this tiny room right now because everybody's stuff had been offline, and they're all trying to get all their stuff back online. So they're, like, elbowing people and, like, we only had half the rack. We had the top half, and so there's somebody like trying to work underneath me at like my knees, and I'm trying not to like hit him in the head, and I'm like balancing a keyboard on my hands while I'm working on this. Oh, <laughs> uh, not comfortable. Not, not comfortable. Not comfortable at, at all. all. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember similar timeout things when uh, I had a I had an application that did DNS lookups. Yep. Unfortunately. Whoever was hitting the web pages, their their IP address would not resolve, 
Right. And so my <laughs> Apache workers were, were hanging for two minutes, and I was running out of Apache workers, and every site on the system was down. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, I've seen similar stuff to that as well, and you definitely got to make sure you disable DNS resolution. Uh, the other one is it can also uh, play havoc with SSH. Mm -hmm. uh, so when a server was, uh, one I had was being, I think, denial of service attacked or whatever, and it was, uh, DNS would get flooded out. And so I had to tune SSH to not time out. So when you first connect, SSH only gives you so much time to log in before it kicks you out. But if the DNS timeout is longer than that, then if it can't resolve your IP, you never get the chance to type in your password. Oh, so, so in your SSD, your SSHD config, uh, I disabled DNS. DNS. No. Yes, and use uh, DNS is no. Uh, but the other thing I had done is up the uh, logging grace time to like 10 minutes. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is that makes those bot attacks on your SSH worse too. So it's like mm -hmm. trying to get the right trade-off there. Yeah. It's like, Did, were you were you allowed to run it on non port twenty two? Um, in this case, well, we could have. The problem was we were shelling, uh, selling shell accounts, oh, so people so were going to connect to this, and so we 22. really needed it to be the default. Uh, and so, and also, there's like a hundred customers paying to be able to log into the system, and they're all coming from random places. Some of them are from Europe and stuff, and uh, when they try to connect and it lags and times out, they're like, "Oh, you're." a crappy provider, it's like, actually, no, it's just your reverse DNS doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of that. Yeah. Any mail administrator knows the, the woes of reverse DNS. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, at Scale Engine, we rent a lot of servers, and uh, some of them we get to control the reverse DNS, and some of them we don't. And some of them, it's like, well, you can email us and ask us, and we'll update it, but we haven't yet. So your, uh, your server shows up as like the dorsetmarket.co.uk. It's oh like that's goodness. not us. It's just yeah. Uh, Can you keep it just one two three dot network dot net? Exactly. Uh, or the other place where you're like, well, looking at the, what this reverse DNS resolves to, this was definitely used by a spammer in the past. Oh. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of stuff like that. Hey, guess who I see? Yes. Hey. All right. Get over here, Wes. There we go. Now we got Wes on the show, our special one-time co-host hey, of TechSnap. You know Wes. It. Hello. Hello. You're Welcome to the show. As ever. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Nice to see you. How's your fest going? Oh, I've yesterday I talked so much my jaw was sore. I think that's a great sign of a successful <laughs> yes. fest, right? It is. Yeah, and I didn't even get all fucked up and hang, hung over, you know, last night because I was not, no parties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was with the kids. So. You were playing it responsible. Yeah. Setting an example was, for the was, rest of us. I was the parent. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. one of the parents, luckily. Yeah. yeah uh -huh. uh, so, Wes, we were talking about that uh, TSX story that we had on Telegram earlier. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'm just reading more of the story here in the um it was their central storage server that went down, uh, and their remediation effort started Friday afternoon, and the defective device was replaced and tested. So okay. this really suggests that it, so they had a device, it failed, and they've now replaced it. Doesn't explain where's the, the backup. Yeah, where's, where's the, the backup? Yeah. Uh, you know, not, not, 
they, I'm sure they have tape backups, but where's the secondary device? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For a service you expect to be running, you know, 24-7. It's only the stock exchange. It's not like it's important to the no, economy or no, anything. not at all. Uh, and it's it was a TMX group, so apparently they have shared infrastructure between the Toronto Stock Exchange, the Montreal Stock Exchange, the Toronto Venture Exchange, and a bunch of these other exchanges. It's like... So there's not even a lack of resources yeah, or anything like, else as an excuse. How yeah. about some sharding or something? How about each mm-hmm. of these has a separate storage backend just yeah. so that, you know, one of them doesn't go out? <laughs> yeah. We don't take down the whole thing. Exactly. And if they had separate shards, and be like, oh, well, let's just, you know. You can even set it up so that any one of them fails and it can fail over to, you know, right. oh, Toronto's uh, storage backend has gone down, switch to the... They can share the Montreal one, right? They don't have to have two for every one of these exchanges. Right. They just need, you know... Some level of yes, redundancy. N plus one or yeah. N plus two, maybe, because it's yeah. only the stock exchange. Right. Yeah. They have no money. Yes. It uh, seems like a pretty simple, you know, operational expense as well. You just, you know, it's another line item to the things that you need to run your business. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to know more about what they're actually using uh, as the, the back yeah, end. the technical details. Yeah, like... We, we, we kind of postulated maybe a, like a NetApp or an EMC, yep, some, some kind big of storage appliance. Thing. You know, uh, I, have, I have a good feeling that maybe someone from Red Hat got on the phone uh, offering help. Possibly. Uh, but, you know, if it was like an EMC, that, that's Dell now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or NetApp is, you know, a giant company of itself. Yeah, yeah absolutely true. And now they have a great quote here. TMX is committed to applying the lessons learned from this incident to help us prevent such issues from recurring in the future. Okay, commitment. Says the CEO who, you know, laid off half the tech staff uh, a couple months ago. Oh, is that right? I missed that part. Yeah, oh. uh, I saw it in the uh, related news uh, when this first came up. It's like, oh yeah, look, there's the same CEO saying, oh yeah, we're much more agile now because we got rid of like half the people we don't need. <laughs> That's the secret of agile. You just fire everyone and agility happens. Yeah. Uh, so we're it, lean now, guys. We're lean. It definitely seems like it maybe wasn't the power like we thought it was. So uh-huh. we were talking. Jeff talked to us a bit about uh, batteries and and how oh, that works. Nice. And we talked about UPSs and and some fun horror stories there. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. of course, you know, being Texas, uh, uh, being in the current political climate we're in now, they've uh, like I think eight different times in this news story or like uh, hack is, is a hack is not to blame. And there was no cybersecurity incident. It was just <laughs> yeah. hardware failure. It's like nothing's compromised. No data was lost. Yes, I love. I love when we see that like a denial of service attack happens. It's like nobody got into our private data. It's like yeah, that's a denial of service attack is push you off the internet. <laughs> yeah. Not. It's like if a denial of service attack resulted in a data breach, then you're doing you're it doing wrong everything entirely. wrong. Yeah, but at the same time, I can definitely see a data breach followed by a denial of service attack yeah. to draw attention away from it and maybe give some more time. But yeah, part of a bigger, more coordinated effort or something. Right, but in the end, you know, the exfiltration needs the internet to work, yes. so you're not going to combine those two too close together. For sure. It's funny, though, I guess the perhaps the public is now trained, right? Anytime they see any sort of IT issue, they're now worried about some sort of breach. Yes. Which mm-hmm. I suppose is better than it was before, where no one cared Everyone at all about it. But at the same time... We're, we're getting the fatigue now where, yes. uh, you know, they're like, oh, I, I don't Another need to go change one. all my passwords because I've just given up on doing that. <laughs> yeah. Everyone uh, has all my information already. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
We'll never win. That's the problem. Yep. M- maybe right. some maybe some tech at the stock exchange decided he would rack a new computer and uh, didn't didn't understand its power uh, requirements. So maybe, he, but he, it, he it sounds like breaker. it was it was definitely the uh, well they they had faulty hardware they replaced. Ah, uh, okay. So it definitely seems like it was something with their storage appliance. Yeah. Uh, although I wonder what it would be that they'd have to replace like the chassis or something. <laughs> yeah, that's like, a pretty major like a fault. Failed disks is one thing, and a yeah. failed power supply is another thing. But they but said they had to replace the failed device. And, but, you know, and, sounds and, spendy too. Yeah, but I, I, I wonder if they couldn't actually do it because they had a service contract and it requires a, like an on-site, uh, on-site like a, a, vendor, a vendor. So they're just li- then limited by that response timeline. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could see that. You're right. <laughs> Maybe they'll renegotiate that now because <laughs> you know yeah. we need faster service. Yeah. yeah. The but, stock exchange can't go down at two uh, one thirty on Friday and not open again until Monday. Yeah. Right. It seems like there's so much money involved there or, anyway. Or Just in particular, the top, yeah. what do you mean a four-hour response time is appropriate? Yeah. Uh, in this case, it makes you wonder a bit if, uh, you know, if this had happened on a Tuesday instead of a Friday, would they have been able to get it up by the next morning? Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Like they got lucky here that they had the weekend to try to get things uh, back online before, you know, everything went to hell. <laughs> it's funny we don't talk that much about the technology behind you know, all these stock exchanges and the massive amounts of data they're transferring at lightning speeds, but it sure is fascinating. Yeah. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you go to learn more about IX Systems, a company that could build solutions driven by open source. I've been talking more and more about different use cases and workloads you can use IX hardware for, and of course it's endless. They'll custom build a solution for you with their white glove approach. But let's talk about backup for a moment. That's something that's on our mind, and IX Systems has solutions that help protect your data as it grows. And we all know that your data needs to get more and more demanding, and IX Systems can help you build a system that will scale to your growth but not break the pocketbook. You can protect your enterprise storage environment and save time and money with a TrueNAS Unified Storage Array with built-in data security from OpenZFS. The TrueNAS Unified Storage Array has industry-standard built-in data encryption that's compliant with HIPAA, PCI, and, of course, now the GDPR. The enterprise version of FreeNAS, it's TrueNAS, the world's number one software-defined storage operating system. You can achieve better backup integrity through its built-in self-healing bit rot mitigation with unlimited instant snapshots, replication, and encryption. And of course, whenever you need it, their award-winning white glove US-based support. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Support the show and grab a white paper to learn more about IX and maybe even grease the wheels up the chain in your business. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And TechSnap is also made possible by do.co slash snap. Digital ocean infrastructure when you need it as fast as you can possibly imagine with data centers all over the world. Everything is SSD based. And when you go to do.co slash snap, you will get a $100 credit. Once you apply that with a new account, you get 60 days to try DigitalOcean. Simple and scalable. You can deploy a system that's custom-built, mix-and-match resources as you need it, or deploy my favorite system with 4 gigabytes of RAM, 2 CPUs, 80 gigabytes of built-in SSD, and 3 terabytes of transfer. It's just $0.03 an hour. And when you go to do.co slash snap, you get that $100 credit. You can make 
a lot of machines. You can even try something out, maybe test out a new project idea that you've had and put something in production. They have monitoring and alerting so you can keep an eye on things, DNS management that's super easy and integrated, and of course, data centers all over the world with 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors themselves. And their cloud firewalls take care of all of the traffic you don't want at the network edge instead of letting it hit your device. Plus, they have tons of great documentation to help you take advantage of DigitalOcean. Just a couple of days ago, they posted a brand new OpenVPN setup guide for getting it going on the latest version of Ubuntu. You can find so much good documentation on DigitalOcean's site. You can deploy an entire application stack like GitLab, the entire stack, with one click, or you can build it yourself and follow their guides if you ever need help. Just start by going to do.co slash snap. Also, thank you to Ting, techsnap.ting.com. That's where you go to take $25 off a device or get $25 in service credit for something that's smarter than unlimited. It's Ting. When you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is $23 per phone per month. It's so simple and easy. I can explain it in just seconds. It's $6 a month for your line and then your usage, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay. Techsnap.ting.com. Nationwide coverage, which I have been testing very extensively on this road trip, and that's how I'm talking to you guys right now. They have no contracts, no early termination fees. You just pay for what you use. You can use their control panel to make sure everything's copacetic and exactly what you expect. Disable individual services, and I'm going to recommend a phone for you, the Moto G6. Ting actually has a review up on their blog right now. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you can buy this high-end, unlocked Android device for $224 because you get that $25 discount. It's a great value phone with a 3000 milliamp battery, turbo charge, great screen, and it supports Moto Mods. They have a full review up on their blog. I love the Ting approach. You can bring your own device or grab one from them. They don't get in the way. They have no experience agenda that they want to push down to your device. They just let you use your phone however you want and you just pay for what you use. TechSnap.ting.com. So have have you guys ever uh, accidentally uh, shut off shut off a rack by plugging too much into it? No, no I've uh, done other bad things to it, but not not plugging too much into yeah. it. Not it's, not too long ago, uh, our sis had been while racking something accidentally knocked the power cable out of the switch, which oh. is the same as unplugging all the machines basically. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, in particular, uh, the rack in this data center has a, a 10 gigabit feed that's actually a, a point-to-point link to another data center uh, like two kilometers away, okay. which is uh, much more expensive real estate inside. So we have a one-use switch there, and that's it. It's just really? where we cross-connect to all sure. the other providers. That makes sense. And then we have a 10 gig uh, uh, DWDM wavelength to this other data center where space is a lot cheaper. Yep. Um, and that's where all of our stuff is. And, and yeah, if the switch that's plugged into goes down, then this whole mm. rack is now isolated from the internet. Yeah, so you, don't, you just have nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was racking a new server many years ago, and I thought just because I had, I had a place to plug it in, yeah. I had the power. This will work, work just great. Yeah, and then when, when all the disks started spinning at once, oh. there was no power for anything suddenly. Yep. Yeah. You, you see, actually, a lot of machines now actually have like, uh, the option of staggered spin-up for the hard drive. Yeah, that's cool. Because that. yeah. like, I have machines with 36 hard drives and one 4U chassis. Uh, and if all of those start trying to torque at once, that, that can be quite a power spike. Yeah, totally. Uh, or like my APC PDUs actually have the option that if power's lost and comes back, start this machine and this machine, 
and then after 30 seconds, start these machines, you, and then yes, after a minute, start these machines. Uh, it's like, you know, I need the switch to come up first, uh, but you know that machine can come up five minutes later after everybody else has already done their, their startup surges. That's the, I think that's the next piece I really want my home lab to have, is a, is a nice managed startup. PDU with yeah. those features. Yep. Yeah. Um, the one I have at home was pretty good. Uh, I have another one where it lost its mind and just says error and, and won't talk to the network anymore, and so you can't... You just can't, you can't talk to it. manage it. Uh, it still provides power. Yes. Uh, okay, but so I've heard central. stories of ones where uh, there was uh, some component failed and the power would like fade until one of the ports would flip off. Oh. Um, like the, the relay would, would trip mm -hmm. uh, and then that would bring the power back up enough that it would keep going and then it would fade some more and, oh. another, and it just like randomly turning off your equipment when That's you're not expecting terrifying. it. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Oh and so, How uh, long did it take to figure that out? A while, but uh, that friend will not buy individually switched power units anymore. Yeah, I can uh, see that. I mean, there's always, you know, there's, there's always a cost to the complexity of things and yeah. most yeah. of the time it works well, but... Maybe well, higher that's a good rate. argument so, for having double power supplies per server. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you probably have two PDUs you bought at the same time. Yeah. So uh, what's the true. chance they're both <laughs> yeah. going to start doing that to you? Well, you know, each power supply goes into a different PDU. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, if, if the two PDUs are the same, maybe they're going to have the same problem. <laughs> Hopefully not the same parts at the same, same time, time and you keep yeah. stuff alive. But, uh -huh. you know, that's also how you can end up tripping breakers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, one too many things goes down on this side. Everybody, you know, jumps over there. rushes over to the other side, and then, then that's that. Then no one has power. Yep. Yeah. There really a lot of those factors, you know, to actually be resilient if you're trying to think about this long term and do it right. Yeah, and you know, uh, at the, our main data center, the second PDU or the second power drop we have is not as much power. Mm -hmm. uh, so like the first one is 20 amps at 240 volts, and the other one is only 10. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Because power is expensive. Right. Yeah. Um, and you most of the time, and, you don't need it. Yeah. And a bunch of the machines uh, don't have dual power supplies because they're really cheap. <laughs> yep. Sure. Uh, we made really compact uh, machines. Uh, although, it's funny. Some of our switches, we've now decided, are important enough. They need dual power. Yep. Uh, but the switches generally don't have two power supplies. But they'll have this little connector, sometimes a weird one, sometimes a normal one. Uh, so like the ubiquities have a little barrel connector and you get like an external adapter and plug it into yes, the other I've power seen supply. Those. Yep. Uh, or but the the net gears or whatever, a bunch of them have like a weird connector for like a proprietary of course, yes. redundant power supply <laughs> module that costs like half as much as a switch. Yep, yep. Uh, not that the component is expensive, but just you only need this if you care about your switch. So we, we know that you'll you pay lots. money for this. Exactly. <laughs> oh wow. I I just learned what the screw on the back of the switch does. What's that's that for, do? That's for lightning protection. Ah, uh, yes, very yeah. much screw. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. Very important. Uh -huh. Yep. <laughs> and <laughs> rarely connected. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, that reminds me of when uh, lightning hit my house. Uh, so it, it came in over the cable line rather than the power. Oh, really? Because everything in my house, in the, all the computer components go through like a UPS sure. and it's all lightning protected. But it came in through the cable line. Uh, went through the modem without breaking it, the cable modem, uh, but then zapped the switch the cable modem was plugged into, and every machine that happened to be trying to receive a packet at that precise second. So, like, a third of the machines in my house, uh, the onboard NICs, are fried. Just fried. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the switch never powered on again. I bet not, right? <laughs> so I had to replace the switch, 
uh, and by like a bunch of like uh, PCIe 1X uh, network cards yeah. and plug them into a bunch of my computers and get all this. Uh, and so I bought this uh, surge protector for Ethernet, uh, but luckily then later replaced uh, my internet connection with fiber. Ah, beautiful. Hey, there yeah, you excellent. go. Excellent. I, I, I remember uh, when people used to use dial-up, especially in the small town where I lived where that was the only option for a long time, uh, the modems getting fried by lightning and, mm. and surges coming over the telephone lines like yes. all the time. Uh, to the point where one guy actually got a uh, bought a pair of media converters on eBay, so that you get your copper connection coming in, convert it to copper or to fiber, yep. run like a foot, just a and then back bit. to copper, so that uh, <laughs> lightning couldn't yeah. pass that. Point. You got an yeah. air gap right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's or a light also, gap. I guess. Light gap. Yeah. That's also important if you if you don't have a common ground between the yep. two places. Yeah, well, good point. Yeah. You don't want to have a current ground loop going between two switches because that yeah. f- that can fry them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I can imagine all kinds of extra complexity if you start putting wireless stuff on the top of metal towers. Oh yeah, uh huh. Yeah, it would make a lot of sense to to just have a have a fiber fiber transceiver right next to it so that you. Uh, yeah, you don't have any static it. or yeah. something like that. You know, high wind can uh, create static and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if yeah. if you have water damage near a connector, you don't want it traveling Ooh. the distance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fiber really uh, runs the world these days. Yeah, yeah. But it's and so fragile. It's so fragile, and I feel like you know, in the most like actual consumers, they don't. Maybe they see it if they have a really nice internet connection, but mm-hmm. pretty much yeah. not. You know, probably these days a lot of the fiber connections too are like big condos, where then it's just become switched ethernet to your yep. condo or something yeah. and like uh in our rack even we use mostly use the the dax the direct uh oh, yeah. copper connections mm-hmm. uh because buying two optical modules and this fragile yeah. cable to run between them or we can buy this cable that's got the modules built into it and you know this is as far as we need to go and uh they don't you don't have to worry about like bend radius and mm-hmm. stuff <laughs> yeah, right uh, yeah. exactly we had uh, that problem when my uh business partner installed the one connection uh, the fiber connector is there, and then it immediately does like a 180, and it's oh. like, no, you cannot bend it that far at once. <laughs> will not work. Yeah. yeah, it's like, or will work, and then suddenly won't work. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that connection I talked about that goes from the one data center to the other. So it terminates at the top of the rack okay. uh, when it comes in the building, and then it needs to go to our switch. But no, you can't just do a 180 like that. Huh. Like they make special plastic things that are the maximum bend radius, so that so you, you can, can just control it that makes uh, sense. and stuff. Okay. And, that's good. You know, and, uh, we saw Comcast uh, stop by our church and install a, a new line, and they were particularly concerned about Ben Radius in their install. Hmm. Yeah. And this is just coax, so they're they're concerned about, well, yeah, about cracking uh, the dialect. Coax, you, know? you have yeah, the, 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 the kind of a thin piece of copper and all this uh, shielding and stuff. Uh-huh. And if you bend it too much, it'll just kink and break, and then you, you won't have a connection, or you'll get well, a, a really well, set noisy connection. Yeah, yeah, and so that that's going to reduce your bit rate. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, the that weave that goes on the outside that can stretch open and let yeah. RF through. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, oh, that makes uh-huh. sense. And you also have a, a similar kind of thing on Wi-Fi radios. The we call them pigtails. You hook them up to the the antenna, and you can get them in you know up to like 500 millimeters mm. in length or so. But yeah, there's no circumstance where you want to kink it back on itself because that's going to break the jacket. It might not break it immediately, but the stress over time. But right? you know, you put it in, inside a chassis, it gets up to say 90 degrees centigrade occasionally. You know, if it's ever in the sun, uh, you know, it, it oxidizes, like all these things. Yeah, totally. Yep. 
the daily grind of everyday service. Yeah. And we have we have such expectations these days, you know. I want I want my uptime to be as many nines as you'll give me. Yeah, and it's, you know I want the wireless to work when there's how many people in here all polluting the the wireless yes, with yeah. their uh, you know especially now phones and so on are like constantly doing even just little bits of chatter. Yep, all know, the time. Yeah. Checking for uh, notifications. I gotta get are, my pushes, Alan. I gotta yeah. get my pushes. Constantly. Yep. Well, it's uh, and then worse is when you have devices that are polling, right? Yeah. They're constantly calling website. Is there anything hey, new? Is hey, there anything got new? Anything for me? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, right. And then times, you know, there's like 800 people here, whatever. It's like, wow. If you if you just visualize the radio coming off everybody, it would that would be, be a like, really neat visualization to yeah. see. Yeah. It, it'd just be like, wow. No wonder the wireless isn't working so well. <laughs> we're just bathed like, in a warm RF glow. Yeah. It's like, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Putting a bunch of more ATs in the room is not going to help this at all. Yeah. Well, ha- having your frequencies separate, yep. that's that's important. Yeah, it's exactly the problem we have at our hotel is uh, you get those people that know just enough to be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. So they've scattered the APs across channels 1, 6, and 11, but they didn't actually make sure to arrange them so they're like not overlapping. Uh, and so, like, one and six are in adjacent rooms. Uh, or, well, no. In this case, is actually the three closest APs are all on channel six. Oh, yeah. Oh. Defeating this the entire the purpose over here. Uh-huh. That's only good if you want to do some channel roaming. Yeah. And and right. you know, a hotel there, you're not going to really roam well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm I'm in my room. I just want to associate with one. Yeah. Different than an office building or here. convention yeah. space. Yeah. In the convention space, maybe, but you know, yeah. You're, you're slightly lucky here that you can. There's there's not walls separating things too bad. Like on, on the floor here, you have almost line of sight to the ceiling kind of thing. Yeah. And there's there's not anything you know giant concrete walls between things. Uh, so five gigahertz works very nice in here. Whereas other places, it's like yeah, not so much. Yeah, this exhibit hall has had a number of uh, Wi-Fi systems and. Uh, Looks like uh, there's a Unify up there now. Well, um, last year, one of the things that they had on display was their Meraki screen right at the back of the BTC. Oh, so, yeah. um, whatever Meraki is compatible with, and that's not necessarily all Cisco products either. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because Meraki and Cisco, they're, they're different divisions, but one of them, as, as Greg Farrell would say, are the cool kids. Are the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, it reminds me, you know, uh, a couple other companies that got acquired by Cisco. Like uh, the SourceFire guys that do uh, Snort and yeah, maybe right. Yeah, that's an all FreeBSD shop, and so yeah, that's I did the not cool kids that. inside. Oh, uh, okay. Cool kids inside Cisco. Wow, I, uh, it's where Dan works. That makes perfect sense. I didn't. I just hadn't realized. I know he was using FreeBSD, but yeah. he didn't let on that it was all FreeBSD. Yeah, uh, all the infrastructure that they use for for doing the security research at. Um, what's Cisco's threat division called? Yeah. Um, oh man, I should know this because we talk about it all the time. I forget to. Yeah. See, this is why we need Dan here. Come yeah. on, Dan. You're letting us down. Yeah. Just everyone watch Telegram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Will you get to see Dan sometime soon in a upcoming uh, in conference? In June. Uh, he's hosting BSD Can. Oh, right. So, Perfect. Uh, yes. We'll be there for five days or so. Excellent. Or I'll, I guess I'll be there a little bit for that. And I think he's got. Uh, he's running the uh, the Postgres SQL conference in the at the same venue. Uh, I think it's the week before. Oh, wow. Uh, so he'll be coming up to Canada for a while pretty soon. Oh, that's that'll be wonderful. It's where he's from originally from, but yeah. he mostly lives in Pennsylvania now. Yeah. But which, which has been your most interesting uh, booth on the floor? Oh, that's a good question. 
I will say, J- Jupiter Broadcasting's got some pretty sweet stickers this year, so, yeah, you know. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I've had some particularly good conversations with the uh, Silicon Mechanics guys. Uh, yeah, they mm-hmm. have a, a, a Xeon Phi-based, uh, so not the uh, offload card, but the actual one where the CPU is a Xeon Phi. Oh, so it's like yeah. 256 cores. That's beautiful. Uh, oh, it- trippy it's not as big as you think it is it should yeah. be with that it's like you, you fit 200 or i guess it's 64 pentium 3 or pentium 4 cores <laughs> in there and then uh hyper threading such that each one is four threads yeah. oh uh-huh. wow yeah, that's yeah. a multiplier there. and they tried it in the boots true os Does it? on top of linux that <laughs> Like well, virtualized or no? Uh, that as the native processor. Oh, as the native. Because it's actually like sixty-four Pentium fours, sure. basically. Yeah. Wow. Because uh, it's interesting. I was just reading like two weeks ago or something. We covered it on BSD now. Um, the Knights Crossing, uh, the PCI card version of this, mm-hmm. um, had some video shaders and an actual video output port, and you could use it as a video card. Although it's mostly designed to be for like GP GPU type workloads. Sure. But using regular x86 instructions instead of having to, you know, write special NVIDIA or right, OpenCL yeah. instructions. And uh, Intel actually made it emulate DirectX by running FreeBSD on the card and having a DirectX program that ran as a 256-threaded program <laughs> and emulated, did the DirectX calculations wow. in CPU. In CPU. Yeah. It's and like, it worked? Turns out, yeah. That's wild. That's, that's impressive. Yeah. That is, I was like, yeah. wow. What do, you, what do you do with an extra 128 cores? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's I don't have anything weird. to do with those right now. <laughs> yeah. I can't run that many VMs. Yeah. Give me something <laughs> really paralyzable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something more than just MPEG encoding. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember back in the day, uh, like when, when hyperthreading first came out, mm-hmm. and AMD was talking about reverse hyperthreading making two cores look like one really fast core. Oh, like, interesting. Th- that'd be cool nowadays, although I think it turns out it doesn't really work for caching reasons and the instructions are not and so on. Uh, yeah, but, caching. you know, a lot of this, the Xeon Phi and Knight's Landing and Knight's Crossing and so on end up really being canceled in the end. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, the AVX 512 instructions that we've seen added to the newer uh, Intel CPUs mm-hmm. is actually basically the Phi instruction set. Uh, and but ported over it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, brought forward and so uh, all that research and so on actually did turn into something useful and we get these highly parallelizable uh, workloads if you have vector instructions so right. uh, we've seen like um, SHA hashing mm-hmm. and a bunch of and like RAID calculations stuff where you can like do 16 of the calculations concurrently yes uh, and basically kind of giving us something useful coming out of uh, that project even though it ended up being cancelled oh that's a, yeah that's a good success story. I feel like yeah. that happens more often than we realize, you know? Yeah. Little pieces of things you can take and slot them into other projects. You just don't get the fanfare of, like, here's this big announcement. We released this product. Yeah, about 20 years ago, when I was, a, you know, a computer computer engineering mm-hmm. student, uh, there was, like, one yeah. machine that could do those kind of Cindy <laughs> things. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah, All now, kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Now it's just like, hey, that's the next machine I'm going to buy. Yeah. I don't know quite what I'm going to do with it, but damn, it's going to run solitaire. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> as many games as you can possibly play at once. Yep. Well, yeah, it's like, uh, remember when uh, 3DFX first came out, I think with the Voodoo 2, we get yep. two of them uh, pinned together, like one would do one thing and one would do the other thing or whatever. 
It's like nobody imagined where people would be building machines with like four graphics cards in them and no doing kidding. silly yeah. stuff or yeah or, uh, or those those um two uh, three U super micro chassis that can hold with like seven eight machines yeah. Seven, eight machines. Yeah, but like the power requirements, but that's like two thousand watt power yep. supply. You are churning through some, yeah, yep. yeah, making yeah, some entropy like, up in there. Not only are those like thirteen thousand RPM fans <laughs> going to be screaming at you, but it's going to like hit you with a blast of hundred degree air as you walk yeah. behind it. Yeah, yeah. And the GPUs really—they've invaded the data center. Yeah, I mean they were already there somewhat, but now they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that we uh, the custom appliance that we have IX build for my company mm-hmm. is uh, one U and it has a special proprietary motherboard that's narrower, oh. uh, and it has a, a PCIe riser a riser mounted on the, like the edge of the motherboard, mm-hmm. so you can actually fit two full height cards in a one U chassis. Nice. Normally, you can only get one because you know the the motherboard is underneath the, the right. card mm-hmm. when you turn it sideways. But this is special narrow. Uh, motherboard, so it's off so to the side, and yeah. you can just so that it. you're down right to bare metal case under it, and you can actually fit uh, either a single dual height video card in it, or in our case, up to two of these single slot video cards. And actually, uh, the riser has uh, a half height slot going the other way, oh. so there is one that overhangs the motherboard, so we can get like a 10 gigabit NIC in there as well. That is slick. although the newer design, the the built-in, the two built-in Ethernet ports on the motherboard are actually ten gigs, so we don't actually. Oh, you don't need have to, to worry about that. Yeah. yeah, we don't have to buy the extra card to get the ten gigabits. Have you guys ever bonded ten gig ports? Ever uh, played around with that? I don't think I have. No, uh, when I needed to do the testing, I was doing some performance testing on SSH for doing ZFS replication over SSH. Oh yeah, and seeing what I could do to get the best speed. I, I cheated and used uh, the machine at the FreeBSD network test cluster that had a dual port 40 gigabit card Ooh, uh, instead of nice. trying to bond two of my 10 gigabit NICs together. To, yeah. Huh. yeah. Uh, I think the best I got was I think 18 gigabits a second uh, of ZFS replication before SSH topped out at the most it could do. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's pretty good though. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think that's Netcat great. got up to 31 gigabits. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Well, at about that speed, you're you're challenging your your PCIe backplane. You know, yep. you're you're getting up to some. Yeah, you're pushing a lot of. That's a lot there. of data to go. Yeah. Yeah, and again, even at 40 gigabits, we're talking about you know you don't have very many nanoseconds to process each of those packets. No. Yeah. Uh, and so, especially when we're uh, looking at uh, performance improvements on FreeBSD as a router, where you have oh, to yeah. take that pack at 10 gigabit, you have to take that packet in do some work and put it back out of the other nick uh, and you have I think it's 14 nanoseconds to do it make your routing decision real quick now yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's why you know being able to do 10 gigabits out of the card is not hard if you're doing the full like 1500 uh, byte packets or if you're doing jumbo frames you're doing 9000 byte packets yeah totally but uh, we test worst case scenario of the 64 byte packet but huh. it's like all header and like one Just byte one of data yes yeah, right uh, and <laughs> You know, that yeah, means to get to get to ten gigabits, you have to be able to do fourteen point something or fourteen point eight million packets per second. Ooh. You have to receive that, decide how to route it, and send and it, push it out. Uh, and you know, for a while there, the best we could do was about ten, mm-hmm. uh, but it really depended on the NIC and stuff. And and now we're we're solidly doing all uh, uh, fourteen million packets a second. 
it's like, okay, now it's time to switch to 40 gigabit NICs and see what, where the bottlenecks are. Yeah, yeah. so is that mostly just a process then of, of finding each bottleneck, knocking yep. it down, and continuing through the stack? Yeah. And then being like, oh, well, we knocked that bottleneck down, but it turns out there was a second one that's like the same size and we got no improvement. Ugh. Or you finally knock one down and you get a big improvement. It's like, oh, nice. Uh, and then, you know, it's on to the next thing. Yeah, the next right, thing yeah. Okay, well, now what's slowing us down? Uh, and then, you know, as he's doing that, he's also testing the firewalls. So how sure. much slower does a firewall get? Mm-hmm. It's like, why does this one firewall seem a lot faster than the other one when um, yeah, it's to scale better? Both. Um, depending on the type of firewall, the more rules you have might actually make it slower. Right. Um, and it looked really weird because at, at first it looked like, all right, as we add more rules, this firewall is getting slower and slower, and this one's staying the same speed. How is it doing that? Mm-hmm. And you're looking at it as, oh, actually, when you give it this list of rules, it recompiles that into a table yes. where it can just so do it can a lookup. Look so it doesn't have to check the packet against every rule. It just checks one rule that has this table of, of matches. Um, and it's like, oh, cheaters. <laughs> so they rewrote the, uh, the test rule set to use a table and, and trying the size of the table. And like, oh, now that both firewalls can yeah, they the same. perform the same. And, you know, you really get into... It turns out benchmarking is really difficult. It's a whole uh, own process, right, with its own... Because yeah. it's like, you know, the biggest mistake Foronix always makes is like, when you get a result, the first thing you have to do is ask why. And then uh, basically why five more times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and eventually then you, it's like, okay, so if this test wasn't actually testing what I thought it was testing. Yes. I was testing uh, number of rules versus size of table, which isn't the same thing. And once I made it, you know, apples to apples... Uh, I got turns out I got results the that same, are very different. like no no difference or the opposite of what I expected. Yeah, you really it seems like you really need to have understanding, right? You can't mm-hmm. a large part like just black box tests. They don't really mean much, right? Maybe exactly. you know your vendor has this, but it's like how does that actually fit into the whole stack? Where are my real limitations? Yeah, and it's same when you get the vendor benchmarks, you know, it's just like, oh, this drive can do this many IOPS. It's like, yeah, if you do all linear and you do it exactly yeah. this way, turns out none the of best my possible things are case. Like that. Yeah. Samsung is apparently notorious for writing their their drive benchmarks that way. You know, you have to you have to get like the full sixty four you know Q depth on their drives yeah. to get that that amount of throughput. Uh, or you know, back in the day, uh, ATI and NVIDIA both got taught cheating on like uh, standard graphics benchmarks, like uh, 3D yes. Mark and so on. Right. They like optimize for that specific test to get a slightly higher score than the competitor. It's like, sure, it gives you a better score, but when you play the game, yeah. you get completely different yeah. results. Oh, oh, so they're lies, damn lies, and benchmarks. Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> It really is a statistics game. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, that's one of the other nice things is uh, on FreeBSD. There's actually a statistics tool built in that one of uh, the FreeBSD developers wrote called MiniStat. Is and that you right? give it um, like you know you run each benchmark uh, before and after or whatever uh, five or more times, and you feed it the numbers from both, and it does the stats and figures out all right with 95% confidence there's a two percent difference in these numbers. Beautiful. Uh, or you've actually or you know. While the numbers, the average and the median are pretty much are, are different, it turns out that there's actually not much difference here mm-hmm. when you look at it statistically. Yeah, you actually look at the spread of the distribution. and Yeah, and then it tries to draw a little ASCII art diagram, and it's like, okay, that, that <laughs> part maybe is not so useful. A little over But it can, it can help you understand um, also, like, so I, I ran the benchmark 10 times, and I got this average, but what I actually got is half the results were at this time and half the results were at this yeah. time. The the average in the middle, I never actually got a result anywhere near there. Yep. And then the median, it's like, well, if I got five and five, the median's going to be like one or the other kind yeah. of thing. It's not going to 
necessarily be the right answer either. And actually, from the graph, you can tell, all right, what I actually have here is bimodal. Totally. It's, so why is half the time it doing faster than this half? Is, is it a cache effect? Uh, is it um, NUMA? It turns out if you have a dual socket system, uh, if you're benchmarking certain things, if you're trying to talk to the PCIe card that's connected to CPU 1, but right. you're running on CPU 0, you go across the cost connect and it takes a little longer and your performance will be worse. So then you're using like the CPU set commander and trying to pin the CPU affinity of a benchmark to be close to, close to uh, what you're accessing. To the, the memory or the, the NIC that you're accessing or whatever. And then suddenly that makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Or even just uh, when I was doing the SSH testing over a pipe, making sure that both sides were on the same CPU yes. and I wasn't copying memory back, back and, forth and forth or back and forth. That, yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's, that's difficult to track down. You, you, yeah. have, to, you have to learn how, how, what PCI lanes are associated with what socket, what core. Yep. And yeah, the abstraction not, really starts breaking down, right? You really have to understand the, the actual implementation of whatever machine you're using. Then. Yeah, and, and not... Sometimes you can pick the wrong cores, and so, and sometimes like not pinning is more efficient. Yep, mm. and sometimes it's also like tweaking the scheduler. Like, right? Uh, do I want to steal more often? Uh, you know, the work's been on this core, uh, but that core's got a bit of other work going on. Do I steal it and bring it over here? But in doing so, I don't get to bring the cache with me. Uh, and it, you know, that cache was hot, and maybe it, was, it yep. would do better staying over there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if it's contending with some other process, maybe that process is going to keep blowing out its cache and giving me worse results than if I brought it over here. That's a lot of things to keep a, to consider, right? And try well, to and get right. Your results on a server might be different than what you want on a desktop, Absolutely. like uh, or a laptop. On a laptop, it's like if the core is not all the way busy, keep all the tasks on one core, so the other yeah, one is just stay in a low power state. Turn it off. Uh, and, and I get more battery life. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, the same thing with, like, turbo boost. It's, sometimes it's faster to crank the clock up and get all this work done in half a second rather than to spend three seconds doing yeah. it at a lower clock rate. Because uh, while that used more battery, it only did it for a short amount of time, and then I got back to a low power state instead of being in a medium state for it's three seconds. Yeah. Uh, so power management and scheduling and having a scheduler that understands power management <laughs> yes. is really complicated, and you end up with this thing of, you know... You have your laptop and your desktop and then a server and then a busy server and they all actually need slightly different tuning. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah, yeah, neat stuff. Yeah. So going back to firewalls. Mm -hmm. So uh, the successor to IP tables mm -hmm. is NF tables, right. right? Okay. So there's a successor to that now too. I was reading a little bit about that. Yeah, is, is that EBF tables? EBPF no. is the EBPF? EBPF is the, the tracing framework. I think this is just a BPF-based yeah. uh, firewall thing. Right. Uh, so do you know what BPF stands for? A Berkeley packet filter. Yes. Boom. Uh, so, you know, you're like, oh, look, if we uh, compile the firewall rules down to a BPF, we can match them fast like TCP dump does. Yeah. Uh, do you know what Firewall's been doing that for 20 years? Oh, yeah. <laughs> IPFW. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it turns out that's a fast way to do a firewall. Yeah. It's because, oh, look, this uh, machine language is specifically designed to match packets. Exactly. It's really yeah. good at matching, matching packets. packets. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, ri writing, the, writing rules is, can be difficult. Yep. Like, the, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, just the syntax between uh, TCP dump and Wireshark, yep. that, 
they don't use the same syntax, and I find yep. it continually confusing. Yeah, right. I'll jump from one to the other, and I yep. just Context have to go. Switching and I, I have to, I have I, to go I, back to the web page and look up more examples yeah. because I can't uh, remember them all. Yeah, back in school uh, for our firewall class, we learned three firewalls: IP tables, uh, IPF, which is the the predecessor to PF on uh, right. uh, FreeBSD and OpenBSD, and uh, Cisco PIC. Although the or, uh, the was it pick seven? Uh, the Cisco we had was literally like a 486-based appliance. Oh, wow. like we had the right? old one. Okay, like yeah. before they made it a dedicated. It was like a regular 486 a, with yep. some firewall <laughs> cards in it or something. Wow. It was but weird. The Cisco pick that's yep. been dead for a decade. Oh, or yeah. it should have been. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it, it was pretty much dead when we were learning it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was you know the syntax is pretty similar to what you would get on a, a newer Cisco like an ASA or whatever. Sure. Even oh. ASAs are out yeah. of fashion, well, aren't true. they? In particular, we had one client who was doing some streaming video. Uh, it was um, TV Ontario had uh, this system called Homework Help, where after school they would pay some teachers to be available via like a internet chat thing to oh, help you with your math homework. And uh, every student in like grade seven through ten got it for free. Wow! Uh, if they were enrolled in, in a public school, um, but. They would have a streaming video part too, and they were pushing up to like 600 megabits out of the network, uh, and their Cisco ASA couldn't handle that. Couldn't uh, keep up. So, yeah, so we, we replaced that with uh, their. We turned their dev server into a PFSense, and oh look, and now we, we can push a gigabit with no problem. No problem. All right. Yeah, I love seeing ZFS send go go like 998 on my yes. network. Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, like I said, I had it going like 18 gigabits yeah. a second. Like, <laughs> I, I just have gigabit at home. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's reasonable. <laughs> but even better, now that uh, ZFS on uh, FreeBSD and Linux has the compressed send, so yeah. you're not decompressing yeah. the data, sending it over the network, yeah. and then recompressing it. What version did that show up in? Was that a... 7.6 In, in FreeBSD, we don't have the same oh, version, right. so oh, uh, it just showed up as a feature one day. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's been around long enough, I think, I don't think it's in FreeBSD 11.1, but it'll be in 11.2 that comes out later this next month, um, or June, but because um, uh, that, without that, what you ended up doing usually was ZFS send, pipe, gzip or xzip P or uh, pxz or, PXZ or whatever yeah. uh pipe ssh pipe unexed um, yep. pipe zfs receive <laughs> just so you could have it compressed over the wire and yeah then, because uh, you know especially if you had highly compressible stuff like a, a 45 gigabyte database that could compress down to like 10 gigs yeah, totally uh compressing it uh but then you could also run into the problem of you know with xzip or gzip even on the lowest compression setting can still take a lot of time, and yeah. you end up not keeping the network 100% saturated. And it's like, ah, this could be going faster if it wasn't wasting CPU. Why am I do burning trying all to this? compress stuff that's no good? So actually, uh, Z standard, the compression algorithm out of mm -hmm. Facebook, the command line tool has uh, a user contributed patch uh, for adaptive mode uh, because Z standard actually has 19 levels of compression, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, and they've actually extended that to have more levels now. Um, or uh, negative levels that are even faster but provide less compression than uh, the minimum. Yeah, I see. Uh, the old minimum. Um, with the adaptive mode, you put it then like between ZFS send and mm -hmm. your ZFS receive, and it adjusts the compression level based on how much data is waiting to go over the network. Oh. So it keeps the network busy and, 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 and a pile of packets ready to go to the network. 
And as soon as there's packets are piling up waiting for the network, because so the network's the bottleneck, it turns the compression up because uh, you might as well spend some CPU time right. and make less You're data and anyway. send it over the network faster. But if the network buffer drains and now the network isn't going as fast as it could be, turn the compression level down and so that we're not uh, you know, sitting there burning up CPU trying to compress stuff that's not going to compress or you know, yeah. to keep the network busy, but at the same time, don't send any more data than we have to. That is super fancy. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And so we've been waiting for that forever. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. It's like how how did nobody think of this sooner? Like even just for GZIP or something. Yeah. It's one of those yeah. things kind of floating around that you would assume. Yeah. Uh, Low hanging fruit. And, and finally, now that we have like uh, PIXIP or uh, even mainline XIP has it now, mm -hmm. and Zed Sander has it, is threaded. Yes. So that exactly. you're using more than one of your cores <laughs> to do the compression. We've had these multi-core machines for kind of a while now. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, for a while, it, it made a big difference. Um, to make sure that whether you compress it normally or with multiple cores, you would get the same compressed yes. file output. Right. Especially, you know, if you're going to publish like the checksum of of your compressed archive on the website, uh, you want to make sure. Yeah, make uh, it easily reproducible. And yeah, and exactly for reproducible build stuff, right? Which is another thing that's caught on in, in open source and so on now. If uh, sure, there's the source code and and there's the binary that you download and run, but how can we prove that that build? source code was used to build that? Uh, so with reproducible builds, it's like you run this script and it uh, strips out certain settings, uh, right. like so we don't put date stamps in yeah, the binaries, yeah, totally. and uh, you know we don't put the host name of the machine that builds number it, or uh, yeah. and build numbers and so on. Uh, but so that someone can download that source code six months from now, uh, run the same build script on their completely different machine, uh, which might end up being the same architecture, yeah, exactly. and end up building the same ISO file that you download, uh, and make sure that you can verify that. Yeah, I'm really glad that that seems to have caught on. People are realizing yes. that it, you know, it's work, right? Like, it's not a lot of build yeah, systems have to be changed or modified or customized. It's not exactly fun, and in the yeah. end, yeah. it's not some new feature it's that people faster. are going to yeah, be. There's no new feature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's kind of the not fun work. So it's been nice to see the Debian project leading that, but mm -hmm. also getting buy-in from other projects. And I think they've had two or three of these uh, world reproducible build summits yeah. where they brought people together uh, to actually get, spend yeah, just get a <laughs> two days of people hacking on it. Yeah, a weekend of actually trying to get it together. And uh, I think part of it is they built this program called the Diffoscope that actually can look oh. at binaries and find where the differences are so you can figure out, oh, that's that timestamp and go back there that and replace perfect it. Perfect sense. Yeah, then you can backtrack and figure yeah, out. Yeah, so uh, usually what they do is... Uh, like even for things that are going to have a timestamp, no matter what, mm -hmm. or where they can't easily change the format, uh, they'll just hard code the date to a specific date so that it's always uh, consistent. And it'll yeah. be yeah, as long as everybody uses that same date, you get the same binary either way. That makes sense. Yeah, Diffoscope. Yeah, like, I'll have to play with that. Yeah, because uh, it can become a, a big thing, especially on some of the Linux distros where the packages you install from your package manager are built on like a random developer's home machine. Totally, yeah. They'll uh, get pushed you know, up some, to some archive somewhere. Yeah, and and in FreeBSD, we have a set of machines in a data center, and they just build all of the packages. Mm -hmm. So like, there's one machine, and it just builds all 30,000 packages for AMD64 for this version. Sure. Yep. And just does that build like, form and once every three days, it builds them. And then on the other days, it builds like i3d6, and then the next day, it builds ARM64 or whatever, and it just cycles through all of them. Turns through the schedule. Yeah. I think we have like 20-something builders that are yeah. all like, you know, Constantly building. 32 to, or more cores with 128 gigs of RAM. That's and beautiful. Yeah. And just that they're churning, turning power Spitting into packets. binaries out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, some a, a lot of projects just don't have that kind of infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so they have a more distributed build system. And it, you know, 
you'd be more worried about <laughs> what else was going on in this uh, developer's laptop when he built this. Yeah. Because right. the other thing is uh, our build system uses our jails thing and uh, a completely clean operating system install uh, is where the package gets built. Nice. Yeah. So like uh, when it builds each package, it uh, starts up a completely clean environment, installs the dependencies yes. uh, from the binaries it built earlier in the process, uh, and then does the one build and then throws it. it all away. That's perfect. Uh, and actually, it does a, a close off from the network as well. Mm -hmm. So it, in a separate step, it fetches all the dependencies. Does the thing and then when you're building it, um, it's not allowed to talk to the network. So it doesn't, uh, a configure script can't decide to randomly pull in extra files yeah. and, and change the results of your build. That is, I've that's beautiful. I like yeah. that a lot. What a good system. Mm -hmm. I am constantly dealing with my own build system at work. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's it's mostly make, and it's not super sophisticated. <laughs> but it's got a little bit of everything. We've got Perl scripts sure, in there. We've yeah. got Bash scripts mm, in there. Gotta have those. We've got Ensys. Uh, have you ever... Have you guys no. ever played Ensys? Do tell. Is, is the Windows packager that was introduced uh, in like 1990 uh, or something like that? And the, the syntax of that is nuts. So I think I've seen yeah. something like that. Yeah, I, you can. I remember you, back in my Visual Basic six days building uh, install shield installers. Oh gosh, uh -huh. yes, I've been yeah. in those days myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, VB6. Oh, yeah. Ant. So I oh, have, yes. have uh, Ant for, we, we for use, Java building. We use Ant to build the custom Java modules we put on top of the uh, commercial video streaming software we use. Mm -hmm. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And a part of my build script also copies Groovy files to Java and passes them through the Java compile step just to make sure that if we do have to take code out of the Groovy files and put them into the, the, the main tree, mm -hmm. that, they, that will they, they will compile. Wow. So we don't actually get the semantic sugar out of Groovy, not a bit not of it. Not at all. You're just, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, same thing happens on FreeBSD. We uh, incorporate a lot of contributed software. Mm -hmm. uh, like we pull in things from upstream. And sometimes those are, you know, Ninja or, or CMake or whatever. Yeah, right. uh, but you build all of FreeBSD with BSD Make. Mm, uh, sure. So we pull in that build file that sits there, and we don't use it. And we pull out the files we want and have our own Make file. <laughs> uh, and then, or the port tree, like we were talking about, is, is uh, thirty thousand Make files that yeah. each uh, compile one program. That's dizzying. Yeah. That, it, like it does everything. It, it downloads it, checksums it, does the extraction, uh, builds it, or patches it, configures it, builds it, and then stages it, builds a package out of it, puts it all done in Make. Yeah. Oh, so there must, there must be then some work done to keep those keep those current and keep the Make files. Oh, there's, there's, there's a team of like 300 yeah, people that right. just do that. Yeah, totally. constantly. And each of them knows when to put a backslash in front of a parenthesis. What yeah, what command barely. do you use to where you need to escape your parentheses? Lots of them. Several, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, but which what, one are you thinking of? I'm thinking of find. Oh, yeah, sure. Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, find. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't go a day without using find. Yeah. I do love find. It's probably, yeah. I've been playing with some, like, fuzzy find tools as well, but it, pretty much, you know, anytime I'm on a server or anywhere else, it's, yeah, find, boom. Uh, like, we use it uh, to trim automatic recordings. Uh, we have one customer that only wants to keep a 30-day archive, so it's every file, every video file over 31 days old just yeah. goes minus, away. Minus M time or minus C time. Yeah. yeah. How many, uh, how many jobs syntax, out there? Yeah, because the syntax is a little bit different on BSD. 
where uh, with M time you can specify different units instead of only days. Oh, so like thirty days or you know, that. yeah, hundred you know, like hours. With, with or with me, I'm always I'm touching a file, and then if I need to, I have to use touch or something else to right. modify the 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 C time on it, and, and then, then do it minus that. newer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not fun. <laughs> Yeah. That's what you're saying. How many jobs? Oh no! How many? Just how many? You know, how many pieces of like monitoring framework or backend yeah. processing that are just like a cron job and some fine commands to move oh, yeah. push things around? You know, it's it gets back to that composability of yeah, Unix absolutely. commands. Like the number of pipelines I've built that are like you know eight segments long. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's it's always hack pipe, hack pipe. Like yep. you you have this thirteen line long single command. Yeah. If it fails in the middle, well. Okay, how how do we deal with commands that fail in the middle of a of a of a pipe train like that? Just exit. Well, of course, <laughs> but yeah. like, Abort. like like at what point do you put the put the standard error redirect and know what command that came out of? Yep. That's a it's good like, question. Uh, good commands will prefix the error message with the name of the command. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. But mm-hmm. if you have three sorts in there, that doesn't help you. Oh, yeah. No, it doesn't help you at all. Yeah. Yeah, because even if they tried to put, like, the pit or something, it's like that doesn't mean anything in the middle of the pipeline. You, you can't you can't yep. recreate the pid when it's it's in a log file. Yep. Uh, and then the other one, um, a couple of years ago, we talked about this cool tool. I was about uh, to pre- ask you about that. Pipe yeah. cut. Pipe yeah. cut, yeah. So you, you build, so it lets you build the, they call them blades, it's the little bits in the pipe. Uh, and you can surf forward and backwards That's and with a preview of, like, you know, if you've got your file and you're, uh, you know, doing grep and then sort and then unique and then sort and all this, and you just left and right going back and forth through them and seeing a preview of what it's doing. Or for the greps, as you're typing the regular expression, it's showing you what parts of it are matching. It almost sounds like a mini that. IDE for writing shell yeah, pipelines. for writing shell pipelines. So is that available? Can we yeah, go is it is, like, is, oh, open is source. It, uh, is it a terminal-based yes, one or terminal. is it like a tickle? Okay. No, uh, it's it's I think curses or whatever okay. it's meant to run in a shell. That's interesting. Uh, and then oh, there's a, another one uh, talk from BSD Can I think 2014. Uh, they called it Unicage, I think it was. Uh, it's popular in Japan where they've actually like written like point of sale systems all in shell script. Wow. So oh, like yeah. the barcode reader wow. it plugs in as a keyboard and just like writes out the barcode number out, sure. as yeah, standard, standard input, right? And they're doing all and. Uh, they built some like analytics software with it and found that doing uh, a shell, a, a big shell pipeline um, over like NFS with 10 gigabit network uh, was 25 times faster than Hadoop. <laughs> I've seen some other things like that. Yeah, you know, for the right yeah. workloads, you can really go a well, long way just with, with the, the classic shell commands. pipeline. With the shell pipeline, they could save intermediate results easily. Yeah, totally. And yeah. so, uh, team up somewhere. You know, or if, if you. Uh, change the shell pipeline or you decide you need different results uh, you can start with the intermediate thing instead of having to go all the way back right. to the beginning restartable at any stage in the process exactly yeah. that's great and did you see that they, they, uh, they had a really nice style guide for writing their shell scripts where it was all like the pipeline was on like column 79 or whatever and so you, it would, you, you know, could watch as the data gets threaded through and, yeah, and yeah it was, just, uh, it was pretty really, interesting yeah I think really we've kind of come back a lot of you know Software has come finally like come back and rediscovered some of the workflows. Maybe you know different tools, maybe different names, a lot like functional programming things. But a lot of them are kind of just what we've been doing in the shell the whole time. Yeah, you want, you want a tool that does one thing, takes an input and writes an output, uh, and in such a way that it's easy to feed that into the next thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, too many programs try to humanize the output, and it's like, 
having that as an option is great. Yes. But maybe off by default would be better. But even if not, uh, or you know, there's some detection you can do on whether the output is, is a, a terminal or yes. not. Right. Because uh, like ZFS send uh, protects you from shooting yourself in the face with a whole <laughs> replication stream. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, more, that more tools really seem like they have that. You know, like, yeah. We're just not going to... If you really want this, then tell me you want yes. this. Yeah, yeah you uh, get used to using a minus N in there pretty quickly. Yes, yeah. and that, uh, that's the other one I, <clears throat> I love about ZFS is almost every command that changes something has a minus N where yes. it just prints out, this is what this would have done. Or like when you're adding disk to a pool, this is what the pool would look like if you did this. Yeah. And you're like... Nope, that's not right. Change, change. Ah, that's how I want it. Take out the minus N, and then it does it. Those are great, too, for like working on bigger teams or things. You, know, you can get that output, have someone else review it, check it off. Yes. Maybe it's even in a CI system or somewhere, and then actually go run the results. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, ZFS question. Sure. So when I have a failed disk mm -hmm. in a pool, uh, say it's uh, I've, I've lost a mirror, and it... You mean half a mirror, right? Yeah, half <laughs> a mirror. An element of a mirror. Yep. That I get a I get this random looking number where the device used to be. Yep, the GUID, globally unique ID. Okay, and so the GUID in general is something that I can say re put into a replace yep. command. Uh, every device in ZFS has a GUID. Every dataset has a GUID. Every right. snapshot has a GUID. Everything's GUIDs. Yeah. Uh, uh, just unique IDs you can pin yeah, this stuff uh, and. Mostly to deal with the fact that you could otherwise end up with two things with the same name and not be able yes. to specify which. If you've ever actually been on a system where there are two pools, both with the same name, when you do a pool import, it'll print the GUID for each so that you can actually tell which nice. one you want yes. to import. I have <laughs> never been in that situation. That is fascinating. But yeah, I but have you, been you, in the situation where I've tried mount, like ha having two different disks in a system with identical like partition labels. Yep. And it used to be Linux would freak out when uh -huh. you tried that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've never like tried this that. Is, this is before Linux, like the UDEV system, started yeah, right. uh, doing its own GUIDing. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, uh, if you just DD uh, a GPT partition disk and you end up with a second partition with the same GUID, that's, you're not actually supposed to do that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, but there are, there are times you want to actually recreate a disk with exactly the, the same, same right. GUID. But if you're yeah. going to... If you, are going to reuse it, maybe you don't, like uh -huh. that, and so on. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that, like if you do um, zdb-l on a, a ZFS disk, you can actually see the GUID of the root pool. Uh, even So if you have a mirror, you have the pool has a GUID, then that mirror-zero device that's kind of virtual, that uh -huh. has a GUID, right, and then each that. member has a GUID. Oh. And if you run uh, zdb-l, you can see each of those GUIDs. Mm. Uh, and also, like, it's a hidden property, but if you do ZFS get GUID and then a data set or a snapshot, it'll print out what it is. Oh, wow. Really? So, oh, nice. Okay, so... Because so, I, I have a fun story about that one. But okay, but build, building on my, uh, my story there is that I've, I've imported pools that are missing their ZIL or missing yep. their mm -hmm. L2R, mm -hmm. and I, wanna re I have to be able to remove them. Yeah. And so I've found that I can do a, you know, a ZFS remove. Z-pool Z detach. Pool. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I can't say... L2ARC name or yep. something like that. There's it's a be the grid. yeah. It, it, it's it's not intuitive looking at the ZFS status output. W quite what I should type in there for that. It, yeah. it has taken some monkeying around, but I was glad that it was possible. I didn't <laughs> have to like rebuild the whole. That's one of those situations where you're like, okay, what do I what do I do here? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Interesting feature coming up. They've uh, finished the work to be able to import a pool 
with a missing top-level device that's not just your log or cache device. Oh. oh so wow. if you lost both halves of a mirror, uh-huh. you could still import the pool. It'd be read-only, uh-huh. and any data that only existed on the, the broken VDEV would be gone yeah. uh, or missing, but you could still get Everything else you data. could still get. So oh, in particular, if you uh, do one of those screw-ups where you had, you, know, you had a bunch of RAID Zs and you accidentally add, attach a, a single disk to the end of it because oh. you forgot the log or cache keyword when yes. you're trying to add that yes. SSD. I've had that happen. And then you do the wrong thing and like blow that disk away and now it's not part of the pool anymore but now you can't import the pool because you're missing a top level VDEV you can import that and all you're missing is the last like 20 seconds of data or whatever that's excellent. Yes. That's, that's a real, that, that's a safety net. Yeah, or yeah. Uh, actually, like, some of my pools, uh, the way they worked was, you know, it, was, it started out as, as 12 disks, and we wrote a bunch of data to it, and then we added 12 more disks, and wrote a bunch of data to it, and on and on. So that means all of the old files are on this VDEV, and the next set of mm-hmm. files are on this VDEV. So if we actually lost the whole VDEV because, like, three disks faulted at once unexpectedly, yeah. uh, at least we could get two-thirds of our files back. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, or so, someone walks in and starts shouting at your uh, your your, your containers. Hard drives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really seems like ZFS has got a lot. Just recently, in the past couple of years, has added a lot of those features. Where like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like mission critical. It didn't prevent you really in most situations, but. It's just like like that nice to have. Where before you had all the like you know the philosophical underpintings, the the great design of ZFS, and now you have as well just like pretty much yeah. all the management tasks thought of that you could possibly exactly. Run into. Uh, you know, ZFS goal from the beginning was always to make the system's life less hellish. Yes, uh, but <laughs> a lot of quality of life improvements have gone in over the time, and it turns out now that you know there was always this concern that once uh, Sun and then Oracle uh, went away with it that it was kind of going to die off and not really mature. But at, at this point, more than 50% of the code that's in OpenZFS today is written since the fork. Wow. Whoa. That's a wonderful Some thing. of that is replacing and some of that is adding. Sure. But, uh, yeah. And then like this year, we got device removal. So you'll be able to remove uh, single or whole mirrors by remapping the data onto other devices. And then we'll just balance yep. that out. And, uh, and then uh, RAID Z expansion is under construction right now. I saw the first working demo of it last <laughs> weekend. <laughs> So this, if you have like a six-disc RAID Z2, you'll be able to add a seventh disc to it you just and just get more space. Wow. And just more space, more space, that more space. That is awesome. Yep. Yeah. It's, that's got to be some crazy math. Um, actually, that one's not so bad. Oh, yeah? It's just some uh, shuffling. Okay. It's just uh, a lot of... where each thing goes. The, the very beginning involves a lot of carefuling. Uh, <laughs> and then after that, it's just go really fast. Okay. Uh, luckily, that one's... Uh, logically not that complicated. Uh, there's video and slides about it at the OpenZFS Dev Summit from last November. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, if you want to, there's it's not quite an animation, but the, a series of slides that shows how the data will be shuffled to make it work, mm-hmm. and how it's actually not going to be that complicated. Um, but, I like hearing that. I do uh, too. That's what we thought at first, and then it, and then it turns out as you start doing it, you run into extra complications. Of course, <laughs> extra but, carefuling. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but the, the very first uh, cut of it that you can have now. Um, does it all as one transaction group? So once it starts, it's like like hours later. It's you can't really do anything else in between. But that's just to prove that it works, and then going to keep working on it, and it'll do it in sizable chunks that'll make more sense, and so on. Please don't unplug your stock exchange. Yes, exactly. And then the other one was oh, we're talking about the GUIDs on snapshots. Yeah. So we got very confused for a while. I was doing incremental send receive, and Suddenly, the script was refusing to replicate this new data set. Uh, and so I looked, they definitely have a snapshot. The, the, these three snapshots are in common, right? They're exactly the same name. Yeah. Why won't it use that as the incremental starting point and keep going? 
and it kept puking at me. And I was like, what's the problem? And eventually, I compared the GUIDs and realized they're not the same and realized my automatic snapshot tool was creating snapshots with the same name on both sides. Oh, and if it's on cron, oh, it's it, yeah. the exact same second, probably. Well, it's if not you, so much that, but have a time date uh, in there. that's supposed to be the, the, the data set that on the receiving machine is not supposed to have snapshots created. It's supposed to replicate the snapshots <laughs> on the other machine. Yeah. But it looked like it was doing that because it had snapshots with the same name. But then I like the size isn't right either because it was zero. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, that snapshot script is including this extra data set that it shouldn't be snapshotting. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been also, bitten by that a, a bunch, too. Uh, I, which has led me to include the host name of the machine in the snapshot name. Oh, that's a good I, idea. I so changed that, my scripts. When I heard you tell that story on, on, on the show, I yeah. went and I added host names to yeah. things. Cool. And because it turns out, yeah, it's a great uh, yeah. technique. Because when humans name things, they might actually name two different things the same thing. We're not so good at that, really. Yeah, like uh, I, we were looking over there. The one that drives me nuts is KVM. Yeah. Right? That's mm -hmm. keyboard video mouse. It's a switch you use to switch between computers. Totally. Been in data centers then, all the time. And then some people over in the Linux <laughs> land there decided that stands for kernel virtual machine. Uh, and made some other thing that the same group of people talk about and call KVM. Yep. And it's like, I, I have um, At my day job, we have a bunch of servers running KVM, and so they just get Through called KVM. KVMs. Yeah, right. It's very confusing. I need to attach so. a KVM to the KVM host. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, humans will name two completely different things, the same thing. Uh, whereas ZFS, because it's a GUID, it means there should be no other data set in the world that has the same snapshot or the same uh, GUID as, as your snapshot. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that uh, like I'm creating 10,000 snapshots and you're creating 10,000 yeah. snapshots and there's no chance of them colliding, that, or well, a very, very, very small chance. chance. <laughs> yeah. It's yes. a big space to explore. 64 yeah. bits is yes. a lot of bits. It's a, yes. And, Who and could ever need more? ZFS is a 128-bit file system. Oh. So is there a script out there that will, that will collate like, conflicting snapshots if you wanted to... Something like ZXFer, but so a little ZX, smarter. Yeah, ZXFer is not that smart. Um, like you mean to detect that situation? Yeah, like, uh, like yeah. if if I, because it would be really handy if I had say an interrupted backup and I got to it a week later and someone had gone in and created some snapshots on the backup machine because they thought they were be doing the right thing. So and, it depends. Mm. Uh, so in ZXFer, uh, the way I configure it for my replication. Any snapshot that exists on the destination that doesn't lo uh, no longer exists on the source is yeah. deleted before the replication starts. But isn't isn't that's that off normally, the tail of it? Uh, well, no, it, it does it up either direction, mostly because oh. it's not that smart. Oh. Okay. Um, which can be a problem also uh, if you do push replication, and then the thing you're pushing from is down, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you so you start doing the work on the slave, and then the other one comes back up, and that's uh -huh. why I usually try to prefer pull. Because yeah. then that doesn't happen. Yeah, right. You have a little more orchestration there. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, you have to like you know kill the SSH key or something so that the other thing can't do it. Yeah, that's a good trick too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me. Does the ZFS on Linux support ZFS allow yet, so that you can delegate permissions? Oh. You know, I don't. Know. I, last I don't last anything. year when I was playing with that, it didn't. Okay. So I don't. I do all I my backup like, replication stuff without having to have root and like no sudo or anything. Yeah, all of my stuff is done with sudo commands, and, yeah. and so definitely, like I, I create a bu user that right. that has the cron jobs, but all the cron jobs are sudo. Ah, whereas mine, it actually the, the se mirror user uh, um, 
has the ZFS permissions to send and receive, create and destroy snapshots, but not other stuff. Mm -hmm. Or I can even say only in this sub data set. So in that there's like pool name slash M for mirror, uh, and it can only create snapshots and destroy snapshots in there. So if the user gets compromised, they can't destroy any other yeah. data sets. And so yeah, on. I would totally like the like the permission system mm -hmm. to, to be. To but be I guess the, the Linux VFS layer is a lot different, and so yeah, right. Yeah, somebody just has to sit down and do a lot of work. It's someone probably is and is getting interrupted as we speak. Yep, that that happens too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it looks like a, as of twelve months ago, zero seven zero. Oh. RC4 had it, so there you go. Yeah. Hey. I think it should exist okay. now. Okay, well, I got to play with that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, I think when you, maybe with 1804, Ubuntu is finally shipping 07x uh, ZFS because I know they were only on like 065 yes. in the previous version. Uh -huh. uh, I have not yet played with 1804 because yeah. it's just been busy, but that, well, I'm going to give that a shot. And it came out on like Thursday, oh, Thursday. afternoon. Yeah. Uh -huh. It seems like a long time, you know? It's Sunday <laughs> already. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I, okay, I probably read it in a container. Maybe I did. Yes, okay. There we go. I did. But that doesn't really count, right? There's no kernel think, or anything. I think that OBS machine is running it, actually. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. Noah and I were, like, waiting for the release, and it got delayed. And uh, yeah. And yeah. speaking of Noah, there he is, working yes. very hard, balancing his laptop. He's playing a video game, actually. He just has that face that he looks like he's working hard. Yeah. <laughs> that way no that's one bothers great. you. It works yeah. every time. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, that's the... Go the hell away. Yeah. I feel like I'm finally having more success now that Ubuntu is shipping the compiled driver. Like yeah, I, there's, um, there's the a lot of skepticism of people. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, we don't know if I trust it. This kernel module, but now it's like, just well, yes, uh, the, the the complication was always, you know, you upgrade your kernel, kernel version changes, and you need the newer thing. Yeah. Uh, but the ZFS on Linux people got their package repo more in line now, yeah. uh, and you can get the the new version compiled for CentOS and Ubuntu uh, pretty easy now. Yeah. Because, uh, yes, the, the other problem is, you know, people have the Ubuntu ZFS and they, they want newer ZFS because of all the features and the bug fixes yeah. there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I definitely would suggest anyone who is uh, following following the latest ZF, open ZFS tag, when they when they do their compile, wipe out their user local lib ZFS libraries. Yeah. Also, do do a find command, wipe out your ZFS and SPL uh, kernel module directories under lib modules. Oh, sure. Uh -huh. I'm and trying to remember it in because you can have library conflicts. Yeah. Right. I think it's 0 0.8 or 0 0.9. They're finally going to merge the SPL into ZFS, so there'll only oh, be one right? thing instead of two instead separate of repos. Two separate, nice. well, I, I think and that'll be 0 0.9. Two or three other libraries, too, you need right. to pull in for that, too. I, right, yeah. but <laughs> those, those, those two are the big components. There's ZFS and SPL, and more importantly, in the ZFS on Linux GitHub right now, there are two separate repos. Right, uh, and totally. you've you got to go fetch each. And then, yeah. uh, luckily, SPL doesn't change much anymore, and that's now it's stable to right, be able to merge layer it in. To, yeah. 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 Is, is SPL used by other projects, or was uh, it? No. Okay. Uh, so we have something kind of like it, but in because... Solaris is based on the same free B, uh, BSD base from 1970-something <laughs> right, yeah. or 80-something. Um, they're a little less far apart. Uh, so we have, like, uh, under sys, cgdl, contrib, open Solaris, a bunch of header files that make the things, and then a Do couple of little files and to, uh, you know... Oh, it turns out the parameters for allocating kernel memory are slightly different in a different order. Right. Yep. Uh, but... Or like convert their lock commands into our lock commands and so on. Yep. Uh, but it's a, a, thin a much, much thin, thinner layer. Oh, that's uh, nice. yeah. And 
we had the advantage of being able to incorporate it into our kernel, so <laughs> yeah, it just right. ships You don't have to deal with all this nonsense. Uh, and do. so in the end, you get uh, a kernel module called OpenSolaris that brings all the compatibility stuff, and then uh, a kernel module ZFS. Nice. So about two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and this was probably actually on a BSD now, that you were talking about speeding up the the configure like the make configure step because that w- that's always the most expensive part of running a build because it's usually single threaded do you remember that conversation was that with richard yao from open possibly well, i, I don't know it was we'll talking about <laughs> yeah but but i'm i'm curious if if any of your con- conversations in in the past couple of years have have brought that up again because speeding up the make configure step would definitely be a super duper lifesaver. Right. The, there was like mentions of how to cache that output. Uh, there's some. Um, I think. I think what you're talking about is when we were talking about doing cross building. Okay. So when you were compiling ARM binaries on oh, an x86. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the originally the way you did it was QMU would run the whole script as uh, native ARM. And that would be slow. Ooh, uh, so yeah, we have so optimizations of like a version of the shell compiled to know that about ARM, but actually run on x86, or like a version of GCC compiled okay, that yeah. generates ARM binaries, but actually runs on x86. To run on. Uh, oh. And so that we basically run the shell scripts and and uh, a version of GCC that run native on AMD64, but do the stuff so that the configure scripts and the shell scripts for ARM binaries would run much faster on x86. Um, That's you know, depending what you're doing, um, a lot of packaged versions of even the source code for uh, stuff. Uh, if you download a version that's designed for, say, CentOS, it'll basically run configure on CentOS and ship that an already configured version. Right. Yeah, I see that a lot. Uh, and then you have to run like auto auto reconf yeah. to uh, make it redo that. Oh. Um, that that's one I'm not familiar with. The auto reconf. Uh, it's. Something you mostly run into when porting software to FreeBSD, because okay. it'll run autocomp for Linux. Or more importantly, if you're actually changing some of the flags. Yes, exactly. Like, um, in the FreeBSD port tree, you get a menu where you can, like, I want to compile FFmpeg with these extra things added. And so you have to throw out the old configure and do a new one. It would be great if there was some kind of multi-threaded Sure, it would also be great if the configure scripts weren't, like, 250 kilobytes of auto-generated crazy. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Autoconf is terrible. How it works at all, I, I'm continually it is, amazed. It is about as black magic as you're going to get. <laughs> like, yeah. in the olden days, it made sense when you had to check for, like, IRIX that didn't support this. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah. Because uh, the one that got me for a long time was the Autoconf bug when we switched to FreeBSD 10. It would look at it, and because it's uh, the comparison they did in Shell was kind of wrong, it thought FreeBSD 10 meant FreeBSD 1.0, oh. which meant it was like, oh, that doesn't support dynamic shared libraries. <laughs> I'm going to statically compile everything. <laughs> uh, or, and some apps would be like, sorry, we don't support statically compiling. It's like, this is FreeBSD 10. Yeah. This is FreeBSD 10. It's not 1993. <laughs> We've we had can, this a long time. Yeah. yeah. So that we actually had a step in our port where you have to go through and patch all the automake files to be like, no, 10 and 1 are not... Just because it starts with the number 1 does not mean it's FreeBSD 1. Wrong substring match. Those right. things are so fragile. People like, I run into well, broken like, version checks all the time. Yes, and, and it kind of... 
you probably didn't assume it would be a problem when you wrote the script to detect FreeBSD 2.0 in, in 1997 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then it just lurks there until that, it breaks. You know, autocomp is just copy and paste for 20 years, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> And oh, different versions of Linux also have different autoconf behavior. Like in, in Ubuntu, autoconf will run reliably as root, but not as a user. And this is, oh. as I grew up, was a big no-no. You never used to compile anything as root yeah, ever. Right. There was just no, no excuse for that. On, on FreeBSD, autoconf is a third-party package, so it's not installed by default. Ah. So okay. it's like yeah. a dependency you install yeah. if you're going to compile some GPL apps. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Uh, and so that does mean that you can get different versions of it over time. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's. But I mean, you always too. get a newer version, which is usually okay. Yeah, yeah. hopefully it's better. Mm -hmm. Or they fix that darn yeah. bug you were. Well, at some point, you know, you get configure scripts that are like you need autoconf at least two point one three to run this. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And it's like, well, at least I can get that now. I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas if it was shipped in the OS, it's like I'm on the five five year LTS branch. I don't got that version. Yeah. What, what are we going to compile it a whole separate version somewhere? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyhow, I, I find uh, altering like the make flags for a, a bunch of networking things that I want to compile under like Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. It just got a lot harder because the default default library choices yeah. in yeah. like 16.04 added like a bunch of like dash golden kind of options and and it would just halt, like it's just so frustrating because so many of the packages we're using are like centos and fedora based that i have to You're i have to, to chase go. down the, the 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 config flags for tiny it tiny little differences and and it's it's frustrating to figure out well, imagine trying to do this BSD where everything assumes it's probably running on Linux. <laughs> and it's never been yeah. tested on FreeBSD. Maybe it's only one or two little things that need changing, but it's also like the fact that almost everything by default, that's, uh, everything not included in the operating system goes in user local yeah. lib oh, yeah. or user local that's, that's includes. Right. Right. And yeah. that's not always in a lot of configure scripts default search uh -huh. paths. No, so no. That's like every program, you're like dash dash include yep. user local include that's so right yeah and and when you start compiling zfs on linux all this all, all your output goes into user local yes. and then you have to you that's have to, where it's supposed to go everything that part of the operating system goes <laughs> in your local directory and that means that anything like the dkms packages yep. all those scripts even your uh, se uh, your systemd uh, targets and systems, those scripts will have the wrong paths in because those are all going to point to slash user. Right. Uh huh. So you yeah. have to uninstall. It doesn't search both? What? <laughs> oh, goodness. So, yes, you have to uninstall all of your apt or your RPM right, packages. Right, whatever old ones that you have yeah, that, are, because, that left things behind. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that's actually one of the reasons that I got pretty good at writing systemd's uh, unit files is because I wanted ZFS to come up the right way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you I had compiled to your own those. version, and then you can write your own yeah. init file. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap up from the, our live show here at Linux Fest Northwest? I think I think it's just been a great fest this year. Yeah. Awesome turnout. Tons of great talks. And the one, the only, Alan Jude to join us. Yeah, we go. Yeah, it's, we got it's, been, a, it's been a pleasure. I've, uh, I've been harassing you guys from a distance for a number well, of years. Uh, so how many of the podcasts on Jupiter Broadcasting have you been on now? Have you ever been uh, on Linux Unplugged via the Mumble Room? No, I haven't. Oh, you we would love to have you, absolutely. Okay. Please you know, join it, us. Because we usually do on TechSnap. 
Wait, wait, yeah. sorry. Uh, uh, we interviewed was... on BSD Now uh, uh-huh. outside on yeah, your yeah. bike. That That's was right. great. That was yeah. a good. I like that interview. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've been, yeah, I, you know, with the Nerf guns. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so you've been uh-huh. on uh, the Linux Action Show yeah, before. Yeah, I've been so on the live get... stream yeah. uh, at, at Fest a couple yeah. of times. Yep, totally. So yeah. if we get you on Linux Unplugged someday. Yeah. You will be a yeah, great I'm, voice of reason to add yeah. to the, the clamor. I'm usually in the middle of being an actual professional sure. when that's yeah, on. Sure. So yes. that's my that's my, my difficulty yeah. there. Well, if you ever yeah. end up with a sick day or just a day off. I need a sick day. Yeah, I think you do. Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe Tuesday around 2 p.m. Pacific, something like that. Yeah. Turns out All lunch right. didn't sit well with you. That's yeah. a shame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. With that Thank charming you. note, I guess we're out of here. I hope you enjoyed this bit of a divergence from our regular format, but man, it's always good to hear from Alan, and I love Jed and Wes too, so it's so fun for me to be able to sit back and get to listen to an episode of the TechSnap program. Now, if you are a patron over at patreon.com slash Signal, you may have heard this earlier in the year. It's just one of the many perks of being a Jupiter Signal patron. Thanks to Jed, Wes, and of course, Alan for sitting down and recording that and We'll be back soon with our regular format. And in the meantime, we need those questions and war stories so we can hit the ground running. TechSnap.Systems slash contact. And of course, grab every episode when we publish it right from our feed. TechSnap.Systems slash subscribe. Thanks so much for joining us and we will see you soon.